Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading in Danish, and the English text will be on the screen as I read. Vi fortæller jer om det livets ord, som var til fra begyndelsen hos faderen. Han blev sendt her til jorden, for at vi kunne se ham, og gennem ham få del i det evige liv. Vi så ham med vores egne øjne, og vi rørte ved ham med vores egne hænder. Han bragte budskabet om evigt liv til os mennesker, og vi har selv lyttet til det. Vi fortæller jer om det, vi selv har set og hørt, for at I må opleve det samme fællesskab, som vi oplever, nemlig fællesskabet med faderen og med hans søn, Jesus Kristus. Vi skriver det her til jer, for at jeres hjerter må blive fyldt med glæde. Det budskab, som Jesus kom med, og som vi giver videre til jer, er, at Gud er lys. Det findes slet intet mørke i ham. Hvis vi siger, at vi har fællesskab med ham, men samtidig lever i åndeligt mørke, så lyver vi og følger ikke sandheden. Men hvis vi lever i Guds lys, ligesom Jesus altid levede i lyset, så har vi fællesskab med hinanden, og Jesus Kristus, Guds søn, blod renser os fra al søn. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. My name is Brian. If you're visiting, I am one of the pastors here at Trinity City Church, and we are in the middle of a sermon series called Christian Practices, where we're looking at uh, the five different practices that our church emphasizes as we are being formed in the ways of Christ and his love. Uh, we're pretty much right in the middle of those practices. We did an opening series that talked about why we talk about these things as practices and not as it's commonly talked about, like values. Sometimes churches have values. For us, we talk about this as practices or habits because that's a very common way that the church historically has talked about Christian formation. And so today we are looking at the practice of fellowship. Uh, in previous sermons, we've looked at worship, Christian witness, and in uh, the next couple sermons after this Sunday, we're going to look at the practice of uh, service as we pursue justice and mercy and the practice of Christian stewardship as well. And one of the things that's happening, especially in our community group ministry, is I have this weekly rhythm that I have a chart for that as well, I believe. This like circle that uh, can, kind of symbolizes what we are doing each week as a church. As we come to the church, we're uh, learning about a practice at a Sunday gathering. And then the thing I'm encouraging you to do is to commit to a rule of life. Again, that's an old Christian phrase that means a specific way you are going to uh, carry out this practice. And so specific ways that uh, worship is going to look like in your life or doing Christian witness. Uh, some people have committed to practices of prayer for people that uh, do not proclaim the name of Jesus yet or practice of more regular scripture reading. That, uh, and they're doing that thing as a rule of life. And then once you commit to that rule, the encouragement is to practice it and then especially come together with your community group to go ahead and discuss that rule and how other people are practicing uh, these things as well. So that's the weekly rhythm that we have. Let's go ahead and pray and get into the practice of fellowship. Let's pray. Lord, this fellowship here has been bought with the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and is being knit together with the power of the Holy Spirit. So help us to be centered on you and your transforming grace as we think about the distinctiveness of Christian fellowship and also how to grow and better the way that we practice it in our daily life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a new famine that I want Christians to be aware of and to commit our resources to relieving this famine. 
And this is not a food famine, which is something that Christians must continue to provide for food insecurity. The famine I'm talking about is the famine of friendship. And there's many different writings and research that's going into this new modern reality. Uh, it reminded me of a, a recent, uh, somewhat recent New York Times article titled How Loneliness is Tearing America Apart that was highlighting this epidemic of loneliness or this friendship famine that uh, as, as I've been calling it. And it quotes this healthcare provider. They did a huge survey on about half Americans that feel alone or left out. And 13% of those surveyed say that, they, that zero other people know them well, that nobody knows them. And the survey also noted that the problem's getting worse with each younger generation. And it raises the question, why are we becoming so lonely? Why is there a famine of friendship? And there's a bunch of different reasons you can cite. Uh, it's, it could be really an endless list. But to highlight some, one is mobility. Uh, modern people move around a lot from city to city, job to job, campus to campus. And that, uh, that moving, uh, driven by career or degrees or whatever it is, uh, causes maybe some periods of life where your friendships are being formed, but because you're moving a lot, you have to start over again. Another reason is technology and social media capitalizes on this sense of loneliness. It promises a type of friendship or community uh, and that it promises to provide that, but in reality, it just silos people and disconnects people in a digital way rather than the real personal physical way that we ought to be connecting with one another. It fuels more of an us versus them viewpoint rather than bringing diverse people together by something more powerful. Another problem I could cite is uh, the constant demands on our time. We have expectations from school and from work and from others that dominate our weekly routines and li leave little room for other things. And this reality in this environment becomes really soul-sucking because we therefore struggle to find friendships and we struggle to find support. Or if we make those friendships, they end up moving because of the reality of mobility uh, and, and, or if you, and, and this kind of like environment just creates this thing where you sometimes might have phases of your life where you have a type of friendship, but then you go into other phases of life where maybe you have a crisis at 3 a.m., but you are not sure who you would actually be comfortable calling in that moment. This is the famine of friendship. And so the practice of fellowship, I think, is the gospel answer to this crisis of friendship. Because the fellowship of the local church is an oasis in the midst of a friendship famine. And so this sermon is going to consider both what the practice of Christian fellowship is and then give some practical guidance on how to foster it. We're going to turn to 1 John as what was read for the scripture reading uh, to get a definition of what fellowship is. And again, the background of 1 John, it's one of those letters that we have the honor of preaching through. It's a letter that John, the author, writes to bring assurance to the church. And it raises the question, well, why did they need assurance? And it's, the reason why is there was a group of other Christians that were splitting off of Christian community and splitting off of local churches to form their own group and their own teachings. And these teachings were often in stark contrast to what the church typically practiced. And so for those Christians that are left behind, they're wondering, like, does this mean that I have true Christian fellowship? Does this mean I have a true connection to the Lord? Because these Christians that have split off say this is the real way that you practice 
the Christian life and Christian fellowship. And so the letter is written to bring assurance to the Christians that are staying faithful to the local church and God's word. Verse, 1 John 1, 1 through 2 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Jesus is the word of life here, and Jesus not only gives eternal life, but he is eternal life. And so you'll notice an emphasis on Christ's divinity, but not only his divinity, but also his humanity in the very personal way that John talks about the humanity of Jesus. He says that this word of life is what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched. And it's something worth noting and pausing to just ponder once again that this author heard the voice of Jesus. He knows what it sounded like in uh, that human form when he was walking this earth. He heard the parables and the teachings and the stories from Jesus. John knows these things about Jesus, and there's a profound weightiness to Jesus' words for John. John has touched Jesus. The Lord Jesus washed John's feet and handed him fish and bread, and Jesus and John drank from the same cup of wine, and so on and so forth. Jesus had this impact on John in a very human and personal way. John continues, he says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, we write this to make our joy complete. So why is the author proclaiming Jesus the word of life? He says, so that you may have fellowship with us. Remember, there's a doubt about Christian fellowship in this context, and the author is trying to give assurance and saying that this fellowship that you have is real. It's the group that has split off that does not have real and authentic fellowship. And that's what he's talking about. He says, they're proclaiming a counter-gospel, counter but your gospel is based on the truth of Christ's divinity and his humanity because Jesus is the incarnate word of life. And what is fellowship? So let's start to define it. In the time that scripture was being read, there can be a more secular sense that it could refer to, just in general, a word that meant a shared partnership or sharing a common purpose. But obviously here in the Christian scriptures, it takes a very specific shape. In Christ, fellowship gets more specific. Christian fellowship is with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a personal relationship with Christ and his local church who join together on Christian mission. See, it's I think it's common sometimes to define fellowship within the church as just a couple of people having a drink and talking about Jesus, but in the, in the scriptures, it's much more profound and dense and thicker than that. It is a partnership with a local assembly of Christians who connect with Christ and one another as they join God in the renewal of all things. That is Christian fellowship, and John says that it's all about our joy connecting to this fellowship. So one of the specific ways that John says that this looks like is he contrasts it with the counter-gospel of the split-off group and what the true gospel looks like in Christian community and fellowship. Look at verse 6. John writes, if we, have, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in dark darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. 
This is the counter-gospel claim. One can have fellowship with God, yet live in darkness. That's what the split-off group is saying. And here, darkness is both living in ignorance about what is true, but it is also doing unrighteous, immoral, and sinful things. And so he's talking about a double life. When they're doing one of two things, they're lying about their relationship with God. They're lying because since God is light, there can be no fellowship between light and darkness. But they're also, in their ethics, in the way they live out their life, they're not living out the truth. They're not avoiding and fighting against sin and also trying to hold Christian unity together. So that's the countercultural claim, or the counter-gospel claim. Look at verse 7. This is what the gospel claims about Christian fellowship. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. In the gospel, we know that God's people walk in the light because God is in the light. And walking in the light includes at least a couple different things. One, John says that we have fellowship with one another. And that's an interesting phrase because you would expect him to say that we have fellowship with God maybe as the first clause. But he says we have fellowship with one another. That's what it means to walk in the light. And we can already see that it includes both, doesn't it? That fellowship with God also includes fellowship with the church, and in the framework of the Christian faith, they, the two cannot be separated. They belong together. The second reason, or the second way to understand what it means to walk in the light, he says that the blood of Jesus Christ purifies us from all sin. The bloody and violent death of Christ on the cross means that sinners are forgiven, and the cleansing power of Christ's blood is something that not only happens during when one is converted, but it's an ongoing power available to Christians throughout the life. We are continuously cleansed by the blood of Jesus as we walk in the light. And in the church, the blood of Christ is what unites Christians together more than anything else. It's not the blood that binds a family tree together, but it's the blood of Christ that binds the family of God together. And that's why the scriptures often speak about the church in terms of family terms, of believers, the family of believers, or the household of faith, or that we call one another brothers and sisters in Christ, because in this fellowship, we do share blood, and it is the very blood of Christ that cleanses us. So here, I want to give you that basic framework of what Christian fellowship is. Fellowship is the practice of fostering a countercultural community in Christ as a family of believers. It's countercultural because we're a community, since we're being shaped by the gospel, that practices things like confession of sin, radical reconciliation, loving accountability, and selfless service. Those things stick out when you practice fellowship, and it gets the attention of the world because we know that we are known as Christians by our what? Our love, which is practiced in fellowship. And one of the reasons I think Christian fellowship is so powerful is because it brings together a diverse group of people and gives them something so powerful that it actually holds the unity together. And that's why it's important for the strength of Christ's love to be the source of fellowship more than anything else in a church. It reminds me of a quote from a book called The Compelling Community written by Mark Dever. And he writes this, quote, When Christians unite around something other than the gospel... They create community that would likely exist even if God didn't. 
Community glorifies their strength instead of God's. And that's where gospel community or community based on the blood of Christ is so powerful. It's, it's utterly unique. It's utterly different than any other type of form of community you can find in the world because other sources of community are held together by things, but those things often are weak and unstable. But the blood of Christ and the unity we have in our triune God is strong and unique. And when we are held together as a diverse group of people by that love and that gospel, it, is, it, it glorifies God because what holds us together is not the strength of our interests, but the strength of our God. That's how we are held together. Now, in the second half of this sermon, now that we have a framework for what Christian fellowship is, I want to provide some guidance, especially if you're starting to continue to develop these rules of life. Uh, you might be thinking, well, I struggle with Christian fellowship, or I struggle with friendship. I don't quite know how to foster such an intense countercultural community. And the, the rest of this message is really going to go off of a, a really helpful article that I read a while ago called uh, The Six Forces That Fuel Friendship. Uh, the author of this piece, uh, this is the last kind of thing that she wrote in a series of writings after she interviewed 100 people about the friendships that they have. And so this summary piece is like all the different trends and commonalities that she saw in different and diverse friendships that kind of held friendships together and also made friendships. And I also want to make a comment before I go through this list that if you're thinking like, man, are we talking about friendship or fellowship? Because sometimes maybe fellowship sounds more dense and thick and rich and spiritual where friendship isn't. I want to remind you that when Jesus talked about his disciples in John 15, he called them his what? His friends. One of the ways that Christ even defines his relationship with us is that of friendship. And not some superficial friendship, but a friendship that's based, according to John 15, based on sacrifice, laying down your life for another, and disclosure of your plans and purposes to this group of people. So I think we can use fellowship and friendship in a way that ties them tight together rather than separate them. So here's some guidance from uh, that article that I kind of adapted uh, uh, for the purpose of the sermon. Number one, spend time together. Spend time together. Deep fellowship or deep friendship will not happen unless you spend time together, and not just a little bit of time, but a lot of time together. The author quoted a bunch of different research that suggests that it takes 40 to 60 hours just to develop a casual friendship, and it takes 80 to 100 hours to even begin to have a deep friendship. And these hours can happen in settings that, and develop very quickly in settings, in different settings, like your college years is a great time to develop friendships quickly because you spend a lot of time with your classmates eating together and you're in the same rituals and routines together. You can, you can accelerate friendships by going on a trip or even going through an ordeal and a time of suffering can pull people together in such a way that you're putting in the time. But the reality is that for many of us, it's not accelerated in situations like that, but it happens over a longer period of time, which is still another way you can have deep friendships. But if you're only spending like an hour a week, just think about it, you just spend an hour a week with somebody in order to cultivate a friendship, and this is a new relationship, just think about how long it's going to take for that relationship to get deep. 
If it's just one hour a week, we're talking at least a couple years before that friendship is going to start feeling a little bit thick, a little bit rich. And that's one of the things I think that happens that we don't realize is that we think that sometimes friendship is going to be something that, that doesn't require time, but there is very little scenarios where friendships are not fostered by the richness of time together. So the point being here is that you cannot have fellowship or make friends without committing time to it. Number two, look for opportunities for friendship. The author calls this attention. She says that paying attention to new friendships is an, is an important part of making them. And this applies to both people who are new to town and they're looking to build their relational network, but it's also for those that think that they're content with the friendships that they have. It reminds me of an illustration a pastor once said that he, he says like all of us are like different sized Lego pieces and the, the slots on the top of them is kind of our capacity for relationships and friendships. And it's something to keep in mind. I always like that illustration because different people have different capacities for friendships. Some people have a close circle of friends and some people seem to be friends with everybody, right? And the reality is, is that everybody has a capacity though, that you get to a point where like, I don't know if I can uh, include another friend uh, in my life just because of time and so on and so forth. But I think one of the things I thought of with this point from the author is that it's often, especially those that think that their friendship is set, that need to look for opportunities for new friendships because you may be missing out on something that's very rich and profound in front of you because you're not opening your life to something that's new with somebody else that could be a great friend. It's no excuse to always say, well, I've reached my friendship quota, rather than paying attention, paying attention to who may be around you, that God is about to bless you with a new friend. So if you're not looking for fellowship or you're not open to it, then it's not going to happen. Here's another third kind of practical tip. Don't just look for it, but take action. It's one thing to look for friendship and fellowship. It's another thing to take steps of action, asking somebody to grab coffee, making time in your schedule, opening up your life and your heart to somebody new. And the reason why this is such a scary step is that this requires courage, vulnerability, and embracing sometimes the awkward process of fellowship and friendship. It's very few instances when you put yourself out there to pursue a friendship that it isn't going to be awkward and weird at times. But friendship and fellowship require that you take action. Number four, schedule routines and rituals to help friendships grow. Creating friendships and practicing fellowship is difficult if you expect it to be fostered by spontaneous get-togethers or one-off events. It ain't going to happen. The author, I thought this was a great point by this author who wrote this, because sometimes I think we think that... Uh, we just need to schedule time with somebody, and it doesn't have to be baked into our routine. And so you have this situation. I know that you do. You go up to somebody that you enjoy their company, and you say, oh, we should get together sometime. Let me, let me send you a text with some, some uh, weekends that were open. And so then you'll send them the text, and then the person responds, oh, none, none of those times work for me. Here's some times that work for me. And, they, and then you start to banter back and forth, and sometimes it takes weeks just to get this thing on schedule. And then you schedule it three months out, Right? And then finally, the exciting day is about to arrive, and the person calls up and says, I have COVID. We, we got to reschedule this, right? <laughs> That's the reality of one off events or spontaneous 
uh, times for friendships is that it's often very, very hard. And now, now combine that reality with the hundreds of hours it takes to make a friend and to cultivate fellowship. You're not going to do it spontaneously. You're not going to do it with one-off events. They, it needs to be baked into your weekly routine and rituals and things that you have on your schedule as a placeholder for friends to show up and for fellowship to be fostered. And I think that's why the no, normal rhythms of church life is extremely powerful. If you just participate in the Sunday gathering, community groups, or serve on a ministry team, those hours add up because they're baked into your schedule each and every week. Although it doesn't guarantee friendship, it gives you an opportunity for them to grow because it's just part of your life and it just happens without you having to plan it three months out. But it doesn't just have to be Christian activity. Even outside of the church, you can plan different things to help foster friendship. You could just have an evening each week where your front porch is open or the fireplace is set for people to come over whether they're available or not. You can create and participate in dinner parties, card clubs, hikes, or playing basketball during your lunch hour, and this have it as part of your regular weekly routine. And the exception is that you don't do it rather than the time, or that you do do it rather than the times that you don't do it. You have to put rituals and routines in your schedule for friendships to flourish. Here's a fifth tip. Have a vision for a household. She called, the author calls it an imagination. I'm, I'm adapting this to say have a vision for a household. It's easy for many people to vision their relationships along, around something like the nuclear family or colleagues at work or maybe even a dating or romantic relationship. We have categories and maybe cultural visions for those things. But in the West, we don't typically have a robust vision for the type of diverse relationships we need to actually flourish as human beings, and we often lump it on just a few, uh, uh, you know, a handful of relationships in our life where we're expecting them to fill every relational need that we have. And I'm using the term household. It comes from a, an author. I've already quoted him a couple sermons ago, but Andy Crouch uh, wrote a book where he unpacks this vision for household as a something that happened in the ancient world, but it's something that's also specific to the Christian scriptures. And... A household, he defines as, as uh, bonds of relationships that are outside of even family ties uh, or those who live under the same roof to include those that also take shelter, as I quote him here, to take shelter under one another's care and concern. So it's not just a family. It's not just the people that live in the same place, but a household extends outside of family bounds, extends out of a physical location, and includes others that are not bound by blood or family to be uh, taking shelter under one another's care and concern. And since we're talking about vision, I want to quote Andy Crouch at, at length because you might be even still conceptually thinking like, well, how do I know I'm part of a household or what does that look like? And he has all these different descriptions where he says, uh, this is how you know you're part of a household or this is what it looks like. So let me quote him at length. He says, quote, you are part of a household if there is someone who knows where you are physically today and who has at least some sense of how it feels to be where you are. You are part of a household if someone would check on you if you did not awaken. 
You are part of a household if people know things about you that you do not know about yourself, including things that, if you did know, you would seek to hide. You are part of a household if others are close enough to see you and know you as, uh, as well as or better than you know yourself. You're part of a household if you experience the conflict that's inevitable, uh, inevitable companion of closeness. If someone else makes such demands of you that you sometimes fantasize about driving them out of your life. <laughs> Does that ever happen in a friendship to you or a household? You're part of a household if you sometimes dream of running away, perhaps to a faraway country, so that you will not be so terribly well known. You are part of a household if you return from a long journey, if, you're, if your return from a long journey prompts a spontaneous celebration. You're a part of a household if when you avoid a party because of your anger, your pride, your guilt, or shame, someone notices that you're avoiding that party and comes outside to plead with you to come back in. That's how you know you're part of a household. And he is asking Christians especially who have a theological category for bounds that go across family lines to include a larger set of deep relationships called a household to have a vision for this, to have a vision for this so that you can include others in this type of fellowship because we need a vision for households as a specific expression of fellowship. Sixth and finally from the article, you need to extend and receive grace to practice fellowship and friendship. And the author of this piece, it's interesting, she's not a religious person, but the concept of grace is something she considers healthy and essential to friendship. And grace is something, as she defines it correctly, is not earned or deserved, and the author applies it to friendships in a couple of diff different and interesting ways. One way is of what we would understand well as Christians, that we must extend and offer forgiveness in friendship and fellowship. You're going to get hurt when you get close to other sinners, and you are going to hurt others. But grace restores all things, including broken friendship and fellowships. Yeah, I think she applies it in another interesting sense because she sees grace as some sort of miraculous power, which we would agree with. And so grace creates space for connections and also reconnections with others. And this, this concept of grace creating reconnections was something that really stuck out to me in the piece because we have all experienced relationships that have been broken by something, right? Maybe it wasn't intentional. Maybe it's just because someone had to move because of work and relocating. Maybe it was due to differences that you had in 2020 and 2021 over things that now seem so trivial, and those friendships broke. Maybe it was some sort of legitimate falling out because of something bad that has happened. And oftentimes we think that when those relationships or those stages of life end, we think that's the end of the relationship or the friendship for good. But I think she has a point here because if we really believe in grace, then we always need to leave open the possibility that former friendships may become friends again. Even the broken ones, even the ones from previous stages of life, you never know who God will have for you in future friendships and fellowship. So those are some practical guidance to hopefully get you to develop some rules of faith. Now, let me um, conclude with another angle on Christian fellowship and the importance of it uh, based on John 13 that I'll work up to here in a little bit. 
We ask a lot of questions when we consider a context like a local church like this. Sometimes the music or what the pastor wears or the program or the culture of a church is all very important, and those are fine things to consider. But one thing I think we often miss when people consider whether or not to be part of a local church is you look around at the people and the relationships, and you should ask, is this the type of fellowship that I want to form me? Is, the, is this the type of friends that I want to have. And it's not only Christians that ought to ask that question. Another group of people that do ask that question, whether they know it or not, are those that are outside of the church and they are experiencing that friendship famine that I'm talking about. And one of the things we need to know is that we can't, start, we can't push back on this famine if our fellowship in the church is broken. We can't do it that way. We have to foster the type of friendship in the, this community that's a countercultural community that declares something to the world that they look at that fellowship and say, that is something that I need. Because it's one of those things that, that, that how does the world know that we are Christians? It's by our love. That's how we get the attention of those that are starving for friendship is they look at something different within the church and they say, I want that. And that's why the countercultural piece is so important in Christian fellowship. It reminded me of this story because even, uh, even me as a, as a pastor, I have run in with, with Christians that are not known by their love. And uh, one such experience comes from people often ask about my experience of hosting uh, Airbnb because uh, in, our, in our formal house, we would, we would open up the whole thing when we were on vacation. Uh, for folks to rent uh, for Airbnb, and now we have a specific unit in the house we have right now. But sometimes they ask, is it hard? Is there crazy things that happen? What's the craziest story that's ever happened? And the craziest story involves a Christian homeschool mom who was the worst guest I have ever had in an Airbnb. I kid you not. And what happened was it was like a common thing, like that this person uh, rented our, a request to rent our house. This is when we rented out the whole house before we were going on a vacation. And I think, you know, she said we have six people coming. And initially, she, doesn't, she didn't have any reviews, and we usually are hesitant unless people already have positive reviews. But then she's like, oh, I'm bringing, bringing some of my kids to a, it's like some type of homeschool debate tournament at Northwestern. I was like, oh, okay, you don't have any reviews, but yeah, homeschool Christian mom doesn't scream to me as somebody I should be concerned about. I was wrong. <laughs> I should have been very concerned about this situation because then we go out of town, folks are renting our house, you know, participating in this debate tournament, and then I get an email from my neighbors because I usually tell, give them a heads up like, hey, there's a group of six coming, we're going to be out of town, they're supposed to be here. They said, I think you said in the email, I think you said it was a group of six. I'm pretty sure there's 12 or 14 people in your house. And then they explain, yeah, it was like this, 15-passenger van pulling a trailer that pulled up to your house, and they were trying to be very careful in PC, and they're like, and it kind of looked like, I don't know, like, like they sewed all their own clothing, and kind of, I don't know, they, they looked kind of Amish, it's kind of like, this is what he was saying, okay, I didn't see them, uh, but that's how they explained what was happening, and he said that it was like a handful of adults, and just like, I don't know what you would call them, like a litter of children, or maybe in this situation, like a murder of children, right? <laughs> Isn't that what you call like a group of crows, right? And so that's, this, it just, they just came into my house and, and they were there. And so I, I messaged her about it and said, hey, you said a group of six. My neighbor says there's quite a bit more. Is that true? Oh, yes. 
uh, that's true. And now I'm in this situation when you're an Airbnb host, like they're in your house. And I know I need to confront her about this, but they're in my house. So you don't want to make them too upset because they could do some real damage. And so I said, okay, all right, don't worry about it. We'll, uh, I, we're going to have to figure out how to reconcile like, the cost of this because there's more people than you said that was going to come, but we'll figure that out a little bit later. Okay? So then she finally, uh, they finally leave, and then I uh, just start quoting like, just what our listing says and says, it says you have to pay this amount for this many people. This is how many people you said that were going to be here, but there's twice as much. This is what you owe me. And she was very upset. She says, because most of what she didn't include were children. And she's like, she's like oh, whenever I do this, I don't include the children in, in, the, uh, in the listing. I'm just like, do you get away with that at hotels? Like you go on an airplane? Like you just like book just the two adults and you bring all the children with? Like what? No, like this isn't right. And I was hopeful that like, you know, we're two Christian people. We're going to work it out. She never knew I was a pastor. That would have been a real crazy thing to throw at her at one point. But... Uh, Airbnb had to get involved because she started ghosting me and she wouldn't reply anymore and they had to mediate the situation and just for the record they took my side anyway um, <laughs> when I thought about this I'm just like this is a Christian woman I'm like what if this would have happened to some skeptic that's looking for friendship looking for fellowship and they're like oh man I hear about this Christian love thing that's why the formation of you in Christian fellowship is so key because you have to be formed by something that's so utterly attractive and extravagant to the outside world that they say, that's real, that's true. I want to be part of that. Hypocrisy in a double life will not do it, but broken sinners who are not perfect but are humble and repentant and kind to one another will do it. John 13, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, and he would call these disciples friends, even the one who would betray him, even the one who would deny him, and the rest who would abandon him. And after he washed their feet, he said this in verses 34 through 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How do we know, how does the world know we are disciples, the fellowship of Christians? It's by our love, which is what we practice within this fellowship of the church and then is displayed to the world. Let's move now to a time of communion as we practice this every week at Trinity City Church. Music team is gonna be coming up here and during that first song, you are invited to come up to this table where two people on both sides of the table will have the elements of communion, you just take a piece of bread, you take a cup from them, and then you go back to your seat and you can take communion as you feel led. This table is open to anybody who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. You don't have to be part of this church. It's okay if this isn't your church home. If you believe in Jesus, you're invited to this table. If you're here, you consider yourself a skeptic, that you're not a person of faith yet. Don't feel any pressure or obligation to participate. We're just happy you're here exploring this faith. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 11 about the table. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we prepare our hearts for this table, let's go ahead and say this prayer of confession together out loud. Most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. And Almighty God, in his mercy, has given his Son to die for us, and for his sake, forgives us all our sins. And I can give you assurance of the forgiveness of all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.